Welcome to the Real Marathon Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the best in film each and every week. I'm Rob Kerrer. And I'm Danny Kerrer. This week we are continuing with the third film in the Wes Anderson uh, Marathon, The Royal Tenenbaums. Um, And today, to kind of start off, I wanted to talk a little bit about festivals and the role that festivals have played over the last, oh, I don't know, probably a couple decades in positioning films to be more of an award player. And I felt like this was a good conversation because Wes Anderson isn't your typical award-friendly director, but he has been able to sort of wiggle his way into a lot of the award talk nearly every single year now that he um, has become a little bit more of a household name for film lovers. And he has done this primarily by being a big player at the festivals um, because he, you can't rely on him to be the sort of uh, director that's going to make a ton of money at the box office um, because most of his films didn't make that much money. In fact, the Royal Tenenbaums, uh, made the second most out of any of his films with only $74 million made at the box office, um, which is second to the Grand Budapest Hotel, which made nearly uh, $100 million more. Um, but he has managed to kind of be uh, a, a popular director because he just submits his films to festivals. Um, the short for bottle rocket which is kind of how he got his start was a film that was submitted to the sundance festival which then got made into a future length film and i kind of went back through to look at uh, a lot of his films and where they played and nearly every one of his films there are a couple that did not um, but nearly every single one of his films played at least at one uh film festival. And in some cases, uh, he played some of his films at multiple film festivals. Um, and the Royal Tenenbaums premiered at the New York Film Festival um, in 2001 when this, this film was released. Um, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because I went through and I did a little bit of research back to the year 2014. I'm planning on going back a little bit further, but I just wanted to see um, which of the major film festivals produce the most Oscar nominees. And uh, since the year 2014, the Toronto Film Festival has produced 79 different Oscar nominees. And that doesn't include any of the short films. Um, It's only feature length films. And uh, they've produced 79 of those. Uh, The second most is the Cannes Film Festival, which will be premiering or which will be playing next week. And Wes Anderson's new film is going to be premiering at that festival. Um, And that that has produced 47. Um, After that, you have Sundance, Venice, Telluride, uh, New York and Berlin. And all of these these festivals kind of have become launching pads for a lot of films that may not uh, get a lot of attention otherwise, 
Um, and I think it's an interesting aspect of the way that films are presented um, because aside from your big franchises or like a big time studios with big time directors like a Steven Spielberg or a Martin Scorsese, um, aside from those, those types of filmmakers, they're probably not going to immediately get buzz unless there is a platform for them to receive that buzz and festivals have really, really played a role in that. Um, so in particular, this year, I'm really interested in kind of seeing what comes out of these festivals. And I know when we had our conversation uh, a couple weeks ago on the Cannes Film Festival, um, we, we were kind of talking about how maybe that festival doesn't provide as many nominees as some of the others. But based upon what I have done research-wise, as of right now, um, it has the second most uh, production of nominees, um, which is going to be kind of interesting to see how some of these films play moving forward. Um, what thoughts do you have on that, Danny? Well, I think the degree to which these festivals sometimes play the same movies is also an interesting yeah. aspect of this. So I'd be curious to know is the, the, I, I would imagine that those, the 74, is not unique to uh, Toronto. It's it includes some of the overlap of the other film, or that, other film festivals. Right? That is correct. Yeah, the Toronto Film Festival kind of is um, used as the North American premiere for a lot of these uh, films. So if it premiered at Venice or Berlin or Cannes and um, it's waiting to have its North American premiere. A lot of times they will do that uh, in September because the international ones, because Cannes is in France, then Berlin's Germany and Venice is Italy. Um, those all happen a little bit earlier in the year. And so a lot of times if a movie is big, then they'll premiere again at, in North America at the Toronto Film Festival. Um, so because Toronto is toward the latter half, I think that's probably why they do get a lot of those films. But I think that also shows us as we are heading into Toronto, which happens in the fall, um, we, when we see what films are being selected, if we're seeing repeats, then those are probably films that we really need to keep an eye on as potential award players. Um, and ones that are very likely going to get that sort of buzz. So that will be interesting to kind of follow what ends up, you know, coming out from this year, because I know this year is just kind of with a lot of movies being kind of backlogged in a sense. Um, I don't have too much more to say other than this. I think that the, the conversation about film festivals makes me think about how, I think sometimes I take for granted and I'm sure other people take for granted just how much a movie, especially an indie movie has to go through in order for us to be able to see it in the theater or on a streaming service. And so like these filmmakers and often it, it is the push of a, of a up and coming producer or an up and coming director that is, trying so hard to get their vision or what they made seen by people. And so um, that what kind of is, is sad to think about is there's probably 
some really great stuff that I haven't seen yet um, because it hasn't been given that platform. And these filmmakers might be the, the top filmmakers in 10, 15 years. And I'll look back and I'm like, man, they made that movie and that was out. And I didn't even know it was out, you know, and I'm sure I can access that somehow, but whether or not it's on my radar and these film festivals and kind of working through them and then the, the awards process at the films, film festivals, because often they give away different awards and have a jury. And so I think that is an interesting dynamic in this whole, this whole conversation as well. Oh, without a doubt, that's a hundred percent accurate. Um, and I think especially when it comes to um, international films uh, the Cam Film Festival has been a, a huge uh, kind of jump start for some of these international films that eventually get recognized um, in award season. Uh, the Sundance Film Festival, more than anything, has been kind of a platform for documentary films. In, if it weren't for these festivals, a lot of these films never would make it to the United States or to our our, our screens. And I, I think this ties in a little bit with our conversation from last week's episode about streaming services and how um, I think that there's this connection or this relationship now between festivals and streaming services and how a, a production company or a distribution company may in the past may not have wanted to spend money on some of these films um, that, that are playing at these festivals because they only have a certain budget that they're going to go out and buy some of these films. But now with streaming services, uh, some of these streaming services may be more interested in purchasing some of these films for relatively cheap in the grand scheme of things and bringing it to audiences that otherwise would never be able to see those things. And, um, and I think that's really an important thing for specifically uh, some underrepresented filmmakers and some stories that are being told from underrepresented areas, uh, being able to bring those stories forth. Because I think if you really look at um, film festivals uh, lineups and what films are being played there. There is a really good representation of different perspectives and it just so happens that the ones that eventually make it out a lot of times are, are perspectives that, that we see in the theaters quite often. Um, I think about there was a movie uh, that came out on Netflix this, this past spring called Monster. And that was a film that was played at, I believe, the 2018 Sundance Film Festival, but it just now is getting its premiere release. And uh, I think that's because of the way that Netflix has kind of uh, evolved into going out and trying to buy more of those types of films because they're trying to be more of an award type player. Um, and that film has John. Uh, John David Washington. Is it John David Washington? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the same year that Black Klansman became a big thing. But when Monster played, nobody knew who John David Washington was um, as an actor. And now he's getting to the point where he's going to be a household name because he's going to be cast in big time movies 
Um, and we saw with him being in tenant last year, he got to be the main, I think in a normal year, he probably would have exploded into stardom in a much different way uh, right. because more people would have seen that film. Um, but uh, that, that, that's another aspect of, of these festivals is that it gives a platform for actors and writers and um, filmmakers in general to be noticed that they would never have that opportunity to be noticed if, if they didn't have that sort of platform. Yeah. I wish I could go to these festivals. <laughs> I know. So I know. Yeah. Yeah. It would be, it would be fantastic. Um, but we'll just keep dreaming. Yeah. Um, all right. So kind of taking that, uh, we're going to be talking about a film festival film, uh, the Royal Tenenbaums here when we get back from this break. The three Tenenbaum children performed Margot's first play on the night of her 11th birthday. They had agreed to invite their father to the party. What'd you think, Dad? Mm, didn't seem believable to me. Why are you wearing pajamas? Do you live here? He has permission to sleep over. Well, did you at least think the characters were well-developed? What characters? There's a bunch of little kids uh, dressed up in the animal costumes. Good night, everyone. Well, sweetie, don't be mad at me. That's just one man's opinion. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. He had not been invited to any of their parties since. All right, and we are back. And we are reviewing Wes Anderson's third film, The Royal Tenenbaums. Um, this movie is about a family called The Tenenbaums, and it tells the story particularly of Royal, who is played by Gene Hackman, and he is trying to make amends with his three adult children and his wife um, after years of estrangement. And the story at its core is really about kind of the triumphs and the pitfalls of family dynamics. Um, as always, we're going to kind of just nestle our conversation in just the context in which this movie was released. Uh, here was a review from Roger Ebert um, at the time of its release in 2002. The Royal Tenenbaums is at heart profoundly silly and loving. It stands in amazement as the Tenenbaums and their extended family unveil one strategy after another to get attention, carve out space, and find love. It doesn't mock their efforts, dysfunctional as they are, because it understands them and sympathizes with them. I really like this, uh, this quote from Roger Ebert. Um, and I really like this movie, but before I talk about it, I want to hear what you thought of it, Rob. Um, I liked this one even better than uh, Rushmore and uh, in Bottle Rocket. It'd been a very, very, very long time since I had seen this. This movie came out in 2001. And I imagine I probably saw it around that same time and so to be completely honest it was almost like I was re-watching this for the first time because I didn't remember a whole lot about it um and and so I I think that the thing that that kind of hit me the hardest was Wes Anderson once again took another step forward in kind of his tone and craft for filmmaking um this 
this film is probably about as close as you get to perfecting that craft. Um, he had a very, very clear vision about how he wanted to deliver this film. And there was really no wavering in the way that it was presented. Um, the, the screenplay did get nominated for an Academy Award. And I think that it was a very, very much deserved nomination um, because it, it is top notch. Uh, the approach of it being very much written. The last movie was written as if it was kind of like a play. This one was written like a novel and it played out very much that way. And I think as an English teacher, I, I had this appreciation for it that maybe others may don't have because uh, I, I can appreciate that they are presenting it as if we are sitting there actually reading it from the pages of a book. Um, I ended up giving this film a four out of five stars or an eight out of 10 on IMDb. Um, there are still some kind of quirky things about this that keep me from being able to entirely love it. Um, but we, we've been talking a little bit about um, characters that are created with that emotional tie. And he takes the next step in this film as well, where you, you see more well-rounded characters that can be both um, kind of unlikable, but then have aspects of them that are likable. And Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, this is the last movie that Owen Wilson wrote, um, they, they have created characters that they give you permission to both hate and love within the same, within the same film. And that is, that shows just how dynamic of a script this actually is. Um, I didn't feel like this film is longer. This film is a little bit longer and um, it probably could have been cut down a little bit, but I didn't think the pacing was as bad here. It didn't feel like it should, should have ended at one point and they kept going um, the way that it, it plays out, I think is just fine. They maybe could have cut certain little parts out um, that didn't need to be, be shown. Um, but this movie is far darker far darker than the last two and there were some dark moments even in the last two um, but they take it to a different level and I think by doing that they have some really interesting things to say about um, about the world and uh, in kind of the perspective of these people one thing, I'm going to turn it to you here in a second, but one thing I want to kind of to leave this sort of conversation on, I have a really, really difficult time um, relating to characters that are from a uh, more well-to-do uh, world and then having sympathy for them when things don't go their way. Uh, it, this is, frankly, I feel like Arrested Development was created based on this film and maybe it was I don't know but uh it felt very very arrested development um and uh sometimes it's hard to have empathy for these characters uh when they are struggling with something because they've had everything handed to them on a silver platter kind of also had a little bit of uh it felt a little bit like Shit's Creek um and kind of that 
um, the idea of watching as this wealthy family kind of falls apart when that wealth is no longer holding them together. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of either comment on a few things that I said there or add some more to our conversation. Well, I think it's interesting how you mentioned that this is all three of the movies that we've watched so far are dark and this is very dark. And prior to this, I would not have really thought of Wes Anderson. I wouldn't have characterized him as that type of filmmaker, but the, this is, I think the experience I've had so far is I think that watching these movies is kind of debunked the myth that I think a lot of times people critique Wes Anderson as being like all style, no substance type of storyteller. And I really think that he's, what he does is impressive because he has so much style and aesthetic there that it's clearly his own, but underneath all of that is so much complexity and character depth and like, you, you feel like you, you know these characters' lives really well and you're only seeing kind of just the surface level uh, aspects of them. But it's, it's not that they're surface level characters, they, they feel deep. Um, I feel like this is a well, much more well-polished movie than the previous two. I think that uh, it, has, it still kind of has like a raw feeling to it. It doesn't feel uh, polished in the same sense that I feel like Grand Budapest Hotel is polished from like a cinematic standpoint and just just the the product the set production of that movie this feels grounded and I think that kind of makes it feel a little bit more uh, raw but I think that there's it, it's it's elegant in the way that it is doing its close-ups I think the cinematography and the editing have a lot of energy in them um, this is the first time that I'm really noticing how much more he's doing with the camera. So he is doing a lot more of like whip pan type shots where he, he will go back and forth between two characters pretty quickly. There's that zoom zoom in shot on Gene Hackman that I think of when he like sees his grandsons at the thing and it zooms in really quickly. So um, those sorts of things that kind of create an energy in the filmmaking that I really like. Um, There's also just details in this movie that are on a totally different level. And a lot of those details are just nestled in the background of the the set, or maybe it's something that a character's wearing. Um, The other thing that I I thought was interesting as we kind of play with this idea of this also being a story within a story that this is told as if it's a novel, not only as if it's a novel, but it literally is a novel, is that all of these characters, while they have this depth to them, the way we perceive them is they're always wearing the same clothes. They're always appearing the same way. Um, so I think of Gwyneth Paltrow's character looking nearly the same as she did when she was a child to when she was an adult. And same with all of the characters. So like they, they have kind of some aspect to them that is easily, easily traceable in order to kind of type them in the way that you would type a character, but then allow yourself to get some more depth in a novel. So I, I think that those are really cool details to the story. And um, I actually gave this movie a nine out of 10 stars because I felt like this was telling a, a story that actually kind of hit me uh, emotionally. And I'll tell you the moment that I, 
I almost, I, I didn't tear up totally, but I felt it was that moment at the end when um, Ben Stiller is kneeling on the, the sidewalk and Gene Hackman just like puts his hand on his, his son's shoulder and Ben Stiller says, it's a re- been a really hard year, dad. And they just leave yeah. it at that. And yeah. I thought that Gene Hackman's really simple reaction to that was really well done. Um, it's not, it's, it, he, he's not overacting at any point in the movie. He just kind of lets himself be himself. Um, another scene that I, that I really liked because it, it was like a roller coaster was the scene when he is, um, he tells his wife that he is dying and they stay in that one profile shot. And so she comes in, she comes out, she comes in and it just is, like as he kind of changes his story in that moment, it it is really good acting and it's just really, I think, good filmmaking to kind of just let us sit in that kind of awkward, weird moment in between there. And so um, just from a character perspective, an acting perspective, a writing perspective, I felt like this movie was just super um, impressive. And I'd seen it before. I just, I, I, I would, it'd been a while and I don't know that I had, I could appreciate all of those details and how they came together. Um, I very easily could have given this movie a nine out of 10. Um, I kind of teetered on it a little bit. Um, I would say it's on the higher end of an eight. Um, but yeah, you are right that from a technical standpoint, like you think about the production design here where you have fantastic, uh, sets, which is that's honestly probably when you think about Wes Anderson, you think about the production design and what that looks like. Um, that's top notch here, um, has very good score. Um, it, it, the, the costumes were an important role in how this film plays out. Um, and then, yeah, the, the acting in this is pretty dang good. Uh, the thing that this is, I think, our real first introduction into um, Wes Anderson just casting a giant ensemble cast of incredible actors that uh, frankly probably are all acting under their ability. Um, But I think because of that, that moment that you were talking about with Gene Hackman and Ben Stiller, because the film doesn't necessarily allow them to act at their highest level. Um, it, it makes those moments where they kind of move into that realm a little bit stronger in a way, um, because you're not expecting that out of these characters at that time. And that's a really true emotional moment. And I agree with you that that, that was the moment where I, I got to the, where I was, kind of gave me goosebumps and um it was the heart of this this film uh it kind of is it, it this this uh, story is almost a little bit like a christmas carol <laughs> um where he has to like kind of discover some of this stuff along the way mm-hmm. and even though i don't think that because uh royal tenenbaum is a terrible human being yes. like he is a bad person um, and so you, you are given permission to feel something for him as the movie comes to a close, but more than anything, you really feel for his kids and kind of the, 
what they what he put them through um, and how they needed to have this experience with their father in order to truly kind of let things go because mm-hmm. they all have been holding on to these things that um, were too much for them <laughs> to be able to hold on to. And none of them were ha- truly happy. They mm-hmm. were all really, really messed up and they almost needed permission from their father in order to truly be happy. Um, and they weren't ever able to get that closure. And the same goes for his wife, uh, Angelica here, Angelica Houston here. Um, where she almost needs permission from him to be able to move along and uh, have that closure. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really, really liked this film and frankly, it's the sort of movie that I think that you could watch again and again and every single time find little things that you like more about it because of what you were saying how Wes Anderson is very detail oriented and he adds things in to the scene that you may not pick up on the first time that you watch something Mm -hmm. um because that's just the sort of filmmaker that he is uh but uh yeah I I really really enjoyed this movie um it's funny because yesterday I watched this I think last night or a couple I can't remember when I watched it but the night I watched it I thought I was going to give it eight out of ten and then the next day I was like no this was really good this was a really good movie and I think it was that moment with Ben Stiller that pushed it over the edge for me I felt like almost in that moment I was like oh man this movie's good like it yeah it I I you, you want to watch movies that give you that feeling and I think I can't say that this movie will do that for everybody, but it did it for me in that moment. Um, one of, before we kind of close things out, one of the things that I wanted to highlight just cause I think it's a hilarious line is, uh, is Owen Wilson's character, Eli Cash, when he says, so we all know that Custer dies, but what this novel presupposes is maybe he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> It's yep. just like it's just so perfectly dumb and like a, a critique of st- just kind of stupid academia people that are you know like really into their own perspective and obviously Eli Cash is a lot of he has a lot of other stuff going on in his life but that I just thought that was just so funny to me. Yeah, yeah, that that shows kind of uh, a little bit of well, some of it is good writing, but the the other thing is that the way that it is delivered is really important to Wes Anderson mm-hmm. films. Um, if you don't have good delivery, uh, yeah. then it loses its entire feeling. But it helps that Owen Wilson wrote that himself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm guessing. I'm sure, I'm sure he like wrote that for himself and just thought this was hilarious. No, I'm, I'm sure that's the case as well. Um, before we close up, I do want, because we, we had talked on the last episode a little bit about this idea of Wes Anderson and I guess Owen Wilson being very interested in writing these kind of awkward <laughs> relationships. And this kind of takes maybe the cake um, when it comes to an awkward relationship um, that's probably less bad than the awkward relationship 
that potentially could come about in Rushmore, but feels somehow worse um, when you have an adopted sibling being uh, the love interest of, uh, of her brother um, and kind of vice versa. Um, And I I thought that it was an interesting, uh, an interesting relationship to kind of dissect because there aren't very many writers that would feel confident in actually writing that sort of relationship. Here's my question for you about that is the moment when they kind of admit their love for each other in that tent and then they kiss, you almost forget the fact that they're siblings and like in a in the weirdest way, you're kind of like happy for both of them because they have such miserable lives. Yeah, and I think that that's a testament to the writing and yep. the performances. Um, I think that like that that is kind of wacky to even say that like yeah, this is an adopted sibling uh, relationship that's happening, and yeah. I'm okay with it for this story. Um, I also think that, uh, and I talked about the relation or the acting there. Um, the, these movies are making me appreciate Luke Wilson as an actor a little bit more as well. And I, and even though he's not really any big part in Rushmore, I feel like this movie he did a really nice job. And it was, it's understated. It's not like he's doing anything, you know, that's he's not <laughs> having some big scene where he's crying but I, I just I don't there's something about his his ability to just be sincere and to kind of have just every day kind of normal guyness you know that yeah. I think is uh appealing it makes me feel bad that he isn't in much anymore I know he's older but not that old you know so yeah. The thing is, I feel like he probably has been in a lot more stuff than we actually know he's in, because I think he does a lot more uh, kind of under the radar work. Um, And I don't know if that's just that nobody wants to cast him in stuff, or maybe he's just not interested in a lot of the more Hollywood-like scripts that are out there. Um, Honestly, my biggest interaction with Luke Wilson is uh, his role in The Family Stone, um, which he he plays a similar type of character in that, um, kind of the more laid-back, chill, average sort of guy. Um, And he's great in that as well. Um, But I think part of kind of the the surprise in this film that is the darkest where the movie goes the darkest uh is the fact that it is him because he's been so understated the entire movie and um and so the the turn that it takes and where he kind of becomes the center of what what is happening in the film um it it works because of his performance up to that point. I also think that the relationship between uh, Luke Wilson and Gwyneth Paltrow, his characters, um, only works because of his suicidal attempt earlier in the film as well. I think that that part of the reason that as an audience member, we maybe forgive it a little bit more is because he is legitimately tortured. And in the end, 
there's nothing really I don't think there's anything really illegal necessarily about I me. Mean, maybe you can't actually marry your your adopted sibling. I don't know, but uh, from a genetic standpoint, there's nothing super messed up about that. Right. Yeah. It's but it, I I guess to your point, the audacity of writing that and yep. the ability to effectively pull it off is what is kind of impressive um makes me the especially just seeing these are kind of the we could call it the the owen wilson phase of wes anderson's uh movies that we just wrapped up watching it it makes me think about um how is his touch on wes anderson's movies going to be different than the movies that don't have owen wilson and so uh something that i want to pay attention to moving forward is just how much can we kind of quantify that and say oh this must be an owen wilson touch of the movie that is missing in movies like uh life aquatic or so on and so forth but it's gonna be also interesting because uh not only is he not the writer anymore but he's still gonna he's still in some of the the movies Mm -hmm. that uh come after after his turn at writing um and so you wonder how much of his own touch he adds to those characters um and so yeah it is going to be interesting now knowing what i know about his involvement in these first three films and how uh wes anderson continues to evolve without him as a co-collaborator um at least when in terms of writing um, in, in the role in which Owen Wilson plays just as an actor in these films. Yeah. I'm looking forward to where we go with the rest of this. Um, so. I don't, I don't know offhand um, when I have my next get the next scheduled uh, Wes Anderson feature, but it will probably either be late July or sometime in August um, when we will, take on the next film, which I believe is The Life Aquatic. I think that was the next one that comes right after. Um, I sometimes interchange The Life Aquatic and The Darjeeling Limited, Um, but those are the next two. Um, And so we'll we'll get to those a little bit later this summer. Um, In the coming weeks, we have uh, next week, we will be doing a review of Luca, which is the new Pixar film. Um, we'll, I think we will probably do a countdown of our favorite Pixar films, um, as our top five countdown, uh, the following week on the 11th of July, we will be doing Black Widow with our Marvel world (laughs) countdown. And then the following week, we will be doing the new Space Jam movie, um, and do a countdown of our favorite sports movies. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the show and we will see you next week with the film Luca. See you later.
Thank you.